0: we are finally going to conclude our sermon series on 1st John and we're at the, the end of it and today we're going to learn from 1st John chapter 5 verses 6 to 21 this is a word of the Lord whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the son of God does not have life I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know <clears throat> Hey, the first part of the passage is not here. Nah. All right, I'm going to open a physical Bible, and let me read it. My apologies. All right, <clears throat> the first part of the passage, which is actually the difficult part of the passage, uh, it says this, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And then here's the screen. Whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is a confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is, uh, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not have love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Uh, what is going on? Oh, I see what happened. All wrongdoing is uh, sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. All right. My apologies for that. I think what happened is I had two PowerPoint files opened, and when I was copying and pasting, um, I copied and pasted probably to the wrong file. So one of the slides was uh, not there. So my apologies for that. All right. So we are going to conclude our series on First John today, and we we get to the end of the passage. And you know, this is not actually a very easy passage to interpret. And I'm going to start with like a little story to kind of uh, explain why maybe this has not historically been an easy passage to interpret. And it's a little bit nerdy, but uh, I think some of the people here appreciate some of the nerdy stuff. So um, I'm going to just tell it anyway. Normally I wouldn't talk about these kinds of things, but uh, you know, when I was in seminary. There was a class, and in this class, we had to learn about the different kinds of manuscripts that the Bible is based upon. So uh, some of you may not be aware of this, but we actually don't have the original manuscripts written by the original authors. Uh, Rather, what we have are these scribal copies of these original manuscripts. And for the most part, the content of these manuscripts are pretty consistent with one another, but there are some manuscripts that have certain differences. And I, I don't think that should really bother us because the differences actually don't have significant impact uh, on our theology. And there's enough redundancy in the Bible where you can draw certain theological beliefs and doctrines from multiple places in the Bible rather than relying on a single passage where the maybe the authenticity is not uh, quite certain. But uh, if you read your English Bibles, like the physical Bibles, probably not in your phones, but if you read like physical English Bibles, sometimes you'll see notes about this. So you'll see uh, variants of manuscripts pointed out. For example, if you read the end of the Gospel of Mark, uh, there's a note there that tells us that some of the earliest manuscripts don't actually include chapter 16 verses 9 to 20. So people will refer to like the shorter ending or the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, If you read the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, there's a story about a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus says, let him, uh, who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, if you have a physical copy of the Bible, there's going to be a note in there that says, Uh, The earliest manuscripts actually don't include that story. And if you look at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, there's a footnote there, and it says, Some manuscripts add, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So if you've wondered why we pray that in the Lord's Prayer, even though you don't see it in Matthew chapter 6, uh, that's the reason. So some manuscripts, uh, you know, they have an additional phrase, but people who translate the Bible, they, they look at the manuscript evidence and they make a decision and they say, well, that probably wasn't part of the original manuscript, uh, which is why some of these things are not included in the English Bible. Now, sometimes these manuscripts would have these uh, scribal mistakes. So because there's no computers back then, and what they're doing is they're physically copying the manuscript, uh, sometimes they would make a mistake. And Uh, you know, it's very understandable mistakes. So for example, they might write a word two times in a row, and that's a pretty easy mistake to spot and say, oh, the scribe just made a mistake when he was copying it down and he wrote a certain word twice in a row. But there are rare times when uh, a scribe might change the wording of something. And this is actually an example of a passage where uh, a scribe may may have changed the wording. So if you were to look up uh, the King James Version of the Bible, Uh, and line it up with another modern translation, one thing you're going to notice about verse 7 is that it's translated very differently. That's because the King James Version is uh, used a different manuscript that is dated later than our modern English translations. And so in our translation in verse 7, it says, for there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. But then if you read the King James Version, it says, for there are three that bear record or testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And so what happened, I don't know why I remember this from seminary. This is literally like over 10 years ago, but I remember this story and this passage. But uh, what happened, and I guess the best guess is maybe a scribe who was copying this down probably couldn't make sense of what it meant by the spirit, the water, and the blood, and maybe assumed it was copied incorrectly. And so a scribe said, John probably meant to refer to the three persons of the Trinity and testify that the three persons testified to it. And so uh, they they changed it. Now that's just a guess, and we don't really know, but people are kind of trying to make sense of the differences that they see in these ancient documents, in these manuscripts. Now, (laughs) I'm not sure if you find that stuff interesting. And the only reason I tell that story is Basically, to point out that this is a passage or this part of the passage is uh, pretty difficult to understand. And I think historically people have had trouble really understanding what John means when he says the water and the blood testify. Uh, At the same time, the main point I think is pretty clear. And so, you know, every time we do a Bible study or approach the Bible and, you know, we kind of have some questions about some of the details of the passage, I do think oftentimes it is the case where. We are not sure of the details. The main point is actually pretty clear. So what I'm going to do today is I want to frame this message around the clear main point and then hopefully give some insight into some of these details along the way. Now, the main point is what John has been trying to do in this whole letter. And what he's been trying to do is he's been trying to assure this community that they know God. And so therefore, they can be confident in their relationship with God and in their salvation. And the previous passage, it ended with John telling them that those who have been born of God overcomes the, wor- the, <clears throat> the world. He wants them to know the confidence and the victory that comes with believing in Jesus. And then in today's passage, he's trying to continue to assure them of these things. The purpose of his writing to them is so that they may know that they have eternal life. It's not simply about having eternal life, but it's also about knowing that they have eternal life, and that, friends, is a matter of assurance. Now, why is it important to have assurance? I don't know if anyone here has ever experienced maybe the kind of doubt that makes you wonder about your own salvation, Uh, but I've encountered some people who struggle with that, and sometimes it's people who are just kind of newer to the faith, and maybe they don't know the Bible very well or don't really have a firm grasp on, on the gospel message. Uh, They may have entered the faith because they had a very powerful spiritual experience and they want to give their their lives over to Jesus. And, you know, when they can't replicate that experience or maybe that feeling, uh, they start to wonder if they really do have a relationship with God, if they they really do know God. You know, other times it might be someone who has been a Christian for a while, but then they have this, I guess, this big moral failing and it puts their entire identity as a Christian into, into question. And so they begin to, you know, lack assurance, like, oh, I can't believe I I did that. Uh, am Am I really a Christian? You see, not having assurance can be disorienting, and that disorientation can prevent you from really accessing the joy and the power that is supposed to come with knowing that you have eternal life. Now, even in other areas of life, assurance matters, right? Uh, It changes things when you don't have assurance. It makes you more anxious. It makes you uh, uncertain of all kinds of things. And out of that uncertainty and anxiety, uh, all kinds of negative things come out. Uh, Maybe it makes you a little bit more controlling or maybe indecisive. And you can't really live life uh, with confidence. Without assurance, you can't really enjoy things. Now, I know at this moment... uh, a lot of people are probably thinking about schools, the opening of schools. It's a big topic of conversations for uh, those of you who are students, those of you who are teachers, and those of you who are parents who have to make a decision about whether to send kids to school. And what you want is you want some assurance that uh, if you're working at a school or going to a school or sending your kids to school, you want some assurance that everything is being done to keep them as safe as possible, or to keep you as safe as possible. And if you can have some of that assurance, then things will be fine. Uh, then the matters, uh, then that you know that really matters in terms of your level of confidence and your level of enjoyment of the school. Now, having assurance with respect to spiritual matters and spiritual things is more important than the kinds of assurance we typically look for in this world because spiritual things are much more foundational. That means having spiritual assurance uh, has an effect on your general sense of assurance in life. And John wants to give this community assurance that you have eternal life. Now, assurance of eternal life is not necessary for salvation, but it is necessary if you want to live and experience the Christian life to its fullness without assurance of eternal life it is going to be hard to experience a kind of peace and the kind of joy and the kind of security that comes with knowing christ Uh, it's a little bit like the difference between walking over this massive chasm on a solid bridge made of steel and concrete versus walking over this massive chasm on this like tiny small old creaky bridge made of like rotting wood right when the wind blows hard you're going to be pretty confident on that solid bridge that your footing is fine and you'll be able to make it across you might even run across on that old creaky bridge you know the wind starts to blow right the bridge starts to move and what do you do you walk across this bridge with a lot of fear and anxiety like very slowly very carefully now you'll make it across that chasm on that bridge but uh, you'll do it slowly and you won't flourish as you do it because you don't have uh, the assurance that you need to, to get across. And I think that's why assurance is so important. It's it's knowing that we have been given an access uh, to that solid bridge that won't break. Now, I've been uh, thinking about uh, the next sermon series. And you know, to be quite honest with you, usually the, the last sermons of the series are my weakest sermons because by that point, uh, I guess in my head, I've moved on and I'm already thinking about the next series. So uh, if you're joining us for today for this last sermon, uh, you know, I hope the spirit is working mightily and the word of God comes alive today. But I've already been thinking about the uh, the next sermon series and I have a couple of ideas. But uh, one of the ideas I had was uh, I'm thinking about doing maybe a series on the promises of God. Uh, and the reason why is because I do get a sense that we could all use some encouragement and having assurance in the promises of God. I think really will give us some of the resources we need to deal with some of the things that we are facing in life. And I don't know how you get through a year like 2020, where there is so much loss of life, and even in this past week, right, so much loss of life, uh, at least in the uh, the world of celebrity, uh, so much you know division, so much vitriol, so much uh, racial injustice, so much instability, Uh, So much uncertainty with respect to our own personal lives and even, I guess, the future of what things will look like next year. Uh, So much corruption uh, emerging and not just from uh, politics, but uh, even in churches, like all these kinds of stories are coming out. How do you get through a year like 2020 without really being assured of the promises of God? What is going to keep you from falling into despair and hopelessness and depression? What is going to keep you from feeling utterly defeated by the circumstances of life and the world? I think it's having the assurance that you know God. It's having the assurance that God is with you, having the assurance that God is in control, that God loves you, right? And so on and so on. But in order to have assurance in those promises, I think you need to have assurance of something even more foundational, which is you need the assurance that you belong to God and you have eternal life. And that's what John's emphasis is in this letter and in this passage. Now, in order to have assurance, there's something basic that we need, which is the truth, right? The truth. Uh, The thing that will threaten assurance are going to be lies. If schools were to lie about the process and the procedures to ensure the safety of faculty and students, then you won't won't have assurance, right? So truth matters. Now, this isn't the first time that John has talked about the truth. Whenever he talks about truth, we have seen that it's always uh, been done in connection with the Spirit. And in verse 6, he says, And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Now, just as when John personified love by saying God is love, Here, again, there's a personification of an attribute here. It's not saying that the spirit tells the truth, but John is actually saying the spirit is truth. The source of truth itself is found in God himself. Not only does he say the spirit is the truth in verse 6, but also in verse 20, when he refers to the son of God as the one who is true. So even the son of God, even Jesus himself is personified as true which is what Jesus ultimately says in the Gospel of John when he claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. So when the Spirit testifies to the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, it comes from the very source of what truth is. It comes from God himself. And we can have assurance because the spirit is truth and therefore his testimony is going to be true. In fact, when someone doesn't believe in that testimony, John goes so far as to say, you make God out to be a liar. Now, to get to that difficult section that I started uh, the sermon with, uh, what does John mean when he talks about the water and the blood testifying to the truth? And you know, there's been a lot of interpretations in history. Some people think it refers to the water and the blood that came out of Jesus' body at his death. Uh, other people say it refers to the sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper. Uh, I'm not really convinced by those. Uh, some people think that the water refers to either Jesus' experience of baptism or to Jesus' baptizing ministry, and that the blood is a reference to Jesus' death on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, I guess if I were to pick one, I would lean towards that last interpretation, although I still have some some questions. But uh, I think either way, the main point is pretty clear. Uh, John is trying to say we can trust that God's testimony concerning his son is true. You can trust it. The truth of it becomes important when you have uh, a sectarian group saying, hey, Jesus didn't come in the flesh, and Jesus didn't die upon the cross, which is what was happening in this community. And, you know, maybe that creates a lot of confusion about what's true and what's not true. You need the testimony of two or three witnesses to validate truth, and the testimonies of the water, the blood, and the spirit are what gave this community the assurance that what was told to them, what was preached in the gospel concerning the Son of God that was preached to them at first, it is true because God himself testifies to it. The spirit and the life of, and death of Jesus bear witness to the truth that, what it says in verse 11, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now, if you read the end of the Gospel of John, uh, this is what he says in John chapter 21, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, and that be- By believing, you may have life in his name. So the Gospel of John is written so that you would believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, In verse 13 of our passage, John gives a reason for writing this letter. And he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So you you see the difference. The Gospel of John is saying, I'm writing this so you believe. First John is saying, I'm writing this so you may know that you have eternal life. It's about assurance, friends. Now, when people talk about eternal life, um, you know, sometimes I hear two two things. Uh, first, I hear people say, uh, "Why would anyone want to live forever? Because that doesn't sound very very good." Uh, zombies live forever, and that's considered a curse. If you're a fan of X Men, Wolverine, he doesn't necessarily live forever, but he ages very slowly, and therefore he outlives everyone. And uh, in the movies, and probably in the comics too. Right? that's considered probably more of a curse than a blessing. So uh, to some people, eternal life doesn't really sound all that great. And the, the second thing I hear is um, people would say, well, eternal life maybe is something that's um, more meaningful for the future when we are about to face death. And that's really when we uh, value and treasure something like eternal life. And you know, to be sure, eternal life should help us when we face death. But Uh, It also has spiritual benefits in the present if we properly understand what eternal life is, if we understand what we have been given uh, by our uh, relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just about quantity of time, but it's really about equality of life. Eternal life is something that we ought to long for, not because it means we get to live forever, but we ought to long for it because of who we are connected to. And when we abide in Jesus and the spirit dwells within us, then we have access to a taste of what life will be like for us in the new heaven and the new earth. And this life is meant to be incredibly filled with joy and glory. Now, uh, by the way, uh, Jonathan Edwards, he he has a sermon series on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And there's about like 15 or 16 sermons based on 1 Corinthians 13. And you know, at the end of last year, uh, I preached on 1 Corinthians 13, so uh, I remember looking at his sermons and I was like, oh man, he, he extracted a lot from this one chapter. But there is this one uh, sermon at the end um, where he's, he's talking about when Paul says, love never ends. And it's really this majestic sermon because he talks a lot about heaven. And it it stirs the imagination as to how wonderful heaven will be. And one of the reasons it's going to be wonderful is, and he, he quotes from 1 John, actually, he says, Because God is love. And so when we come face to face with God, we will experience the greatest love that we have ever experienced on earth. In the final application he makes, What he does is he exhorts people. He says, live a life of love. And this is what he says. By living a life of love, you will be in the way to heaven. As heaven is a world of love, so the way to heaven is the way of love. This will best prepare you for heaven and make you um, uh, meet for an inheritance with the saints in the land of light and love. And basically, you know, what he's trying to say is this, like, uh, the best way to prepare for a life in heaven is really to... Live a life of love, because that's what heaven will be like. It will be filled with love. You will be living a life of love. Why should we love one another? Why should we love people today? It's, it's preparing us for the life that is to come. And so you see, having assurance of eternal life also means that we have assurance of our future life in heaven, which is a life of the fullness of love. And the only reason I mentioned that is because loving one another was an emphasis in this letter. But going back to eternal life, you know, rather than define eternal life, I I think maybe it's better to use a story uh, to describe what eternal life means and uh, what it can uh, do to us. And this is a story from John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman, and she's out during the hottest time of the day. And she's uh, out there during that time because she wants to avoid the crowds. And we find out the reason why she's avoiding the crowds uh, there's probably a lot of shame in her life. Jesus asks her about her husband and her response is to say, "I have no husband." And then Jesus says, "You're right. You've had five husbands." Now he's not talking about right, like legal husbands here, but I think he's referring to the fact that she's had multiple uh, partners, multiple sexual partners, and none of whom were her husband. And Jesus isn't pointing that out to kind of, you know, be a jerk. But he's responding actually to her question because she asks Jesus for the water welling up to eternal life. You see, she had this deep spiritual thirst and she was looking for that thirst to be quenched in the company of men, but men couldn't ultimately quench that spiritual thirst. And so Jesus' offer of water welling up to eternal life wasn't just about life after death, but it was also about fulfilling a deep thirst within her soul. Now, all of us have these kinds of thirsts in our soul. It's it's a longing that we all want to be fulfilled, and yeah, you might look for this fulfillment in all kinds of places. The typical spots would probably be in your uh, in your career, in your academics, your your family, your finances. Maybe it's a approval or your popularity or your status before other people. Maybe it's even your sense of moral righteousness that you are a good person. But those things don't really have the capacity to quench our hearts or our thirst, the thirst of our hearts to the same level that Jesus can. And maybe that's why John ends this letter in a very abrupt way. And he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idols are tempting when we believe they can quench our thirst. Rather than turn to idols, we should turn to Jesus so that we can abide in him. And in that abiding in Jesus is when we get to... um, you know, we receive eternal life because of his death upon a cross, but to have the assurance that we have eternal life, to have the assurance of our relationship with him, in that is where uh, we will experience the deepest fulfillment of our souls, where our souls, the thirst of our souls will be quenched. So I guess the question then is, if uh, you're the reflective type, um, why why don't we turn to Jesus when we feel that deep thirst in our souls? Uh, why, why are we continuing to turn to Uh, these other things that satisfy us. And I I think maybe part of the answer is maybe we don't have assurance, right? Maybe deep down, we aren't really certain about eternal life. Maybe we aren't certain of the truth of eternal life in Jesus, which is why we need the witness of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we aren't certain that we have eternal life because uh, we think we're not good enough, which is why we need to be reminded of the witness of the water and the blood in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Maybe we aren't certain that eternal life is actually good enough to quench our souls, which is why we need to pray. And uh, I didn't go into it in depth, but John actually talks about prayer in verses 14 and 15. And uh, he certainly talks about abiding in Jesus. You see, it's one thing to have eternal life. It's another thing to have the assurance that we have it. And to have the assurance that it is indeed good. But if we have that assurance, you know, then our walk across this deep chasm will be like a walk across a bridge of stone and steel, right? Rather than a walk across an old, creaky wooden bridge. You know, if twenty twenty has uh, done anything, uh, I imagine it has revealed in us uh, deep insecurities, right? Deep uncertainties, and in that, deep idolatries. And that's not entirely a bad thing. You know, it's like what Hebrews 12 says. God shakes the earth in order to reveal a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And 2020 has certainly been a year where God has shaken things up. But, you know, if it reveals something that ultimately cannot be shaken and we cling to that, then actually we come out of this year with something um, better something that will actually give us greater joy and greater security and greater peace than we thought we could ever know. And so, friends, if you believe in Jesus, if you put your trust in Jesus, certainly you have eternal life, and nothing in this world can shake you enough to take that away. But John's emphasis is this as well. You also need to know that you have eternal life. Uh, You have to have the assurance that you have eternal life. And that assurance is possible. Uh, we can have that assurance. And when we have that assurance, we can live uh, life, experience the fullness of who God is and the gifts that he gives to us, in particular, the gift of eternal life. We can experience these things to its fullness. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for um, this letter. And you know, as we conclude this series, uh, just some of the, the the things that we've been reminded of, uh, the importance of, you know, loving you and obeying you, the importance of loving one another, uh, the importance of, you know, holding, grasping front of the truth and uh, relying upon the, the witness of the Holy Spirit. Um, we pray, God, that you would impress these things upon our hearts. Uh, but even more so, as John concludes this letter, uh, we pray, God, that you would give us the assurance uh, that you have indeed given us the gift of eternal life through your son. Uh, We pray God that we would be convicted that life in your son is um, filled with greater joy and greater peace. And uh, especially this year, when we feel so much fear and anxiety uh, over things that are out of our control, when we, um, you know, maybe feel uh, a melancholy or a depression uh, or a sadness because of the things and the people that are being lost uh, remind us god of your w- wonderful promises and allow those things to uh, uphold us and help us to uh, walk through life and experience life uh, not upon our own strength but really uh, relying upon this really strong bridge that you have built for us made of steel and concrete and um, this thing that um, nothing can shake or nothing can destroy um, because you have given us, as Hebrews says, you have given us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And, um, you know, as everything is being shaken uh, this year, including churches, uh, we pray, Lord, that um, believers, um, churches, would hold more firmly to uh, the things of you, um, you know, because we really have to, we really need to. Uh, I'm not sure how we make it uh, without, uh, abiding in you uh, but help us to do that help us to seek time to do that to find time uh, a desire to do that uh, fill us with with uh, a greater desire and longing um, for Jesus Christ in whose name we pray amen